Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 17th, 2020. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So you guys remember we talked yesterday with Eli Lake, author of the cover piece of the commentary January 2021 issue, Framed and Guilty. The rest of the issue is up online this morning. Very exciting uh, piece, a really great piece by our own Christine Rosen on Margaret Sullivan, the media critic of the Washington Post and her what would we say? Her uh, strangely, uh, how basically she does exactly what Trump does, albeit in in column form. Uh, we have uh, a really great piece by uh, Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik on uh, the Supreme Court slapping down Andrew Cuomo's restrictions on religious gathering uh, in in New York State. Uh, following that, Adam White on the turn against religious liberty. Uh, Matt Continetti on uh, a great Jewish intellectual of the past who has much to teach Joe Biden in the present, and a hilarious piece by Rob Long on how Joe Biden needs to handle Hollywood uh, and and uh, keep ahead of his uh, showbiz supporters and keep them uh, in his camp without uh, taking too much paying too much notice to what they want in policy terms. So that is the commentary 2021 issue. Go read. We give you a few free reads. And of course, we ask you to subscribe, which you should do, because as I've been saying, subscribing not only means subscribing to the magazine, it means helping the podcast you're listening to on a daily basis. And at the end of the show, I'm going to ask you uh, about a different way you can help us as we approach the end of the year. Um, a new wrinkle has arisen in the uh, ongoing coverage of Joe Biden's assumption of the presidency. Uh, his speech on Monday night, uh, where he lambasted uh, the Trump effort to continue to treat the election as though it is disputed, uh, received a rebuke today in the Wall Street Journal from Karl Rove, who said that he was setting the wrong tone if he wanted to be conciliatory. This piece, I think, is going to raise many hackles among liberals who are going to say that wasn't conciliatory. I mean, okay, so he said, you know, it's enough already. And he said Trump used, exhausted every legal, uh, you know, path that he had to him. Uh, and uh, we're now supposed to be policing Joe Biden's language and Joe Biden's tone after four years of this. Um, but this also comes on the heels of a quote in a piece and glamour of all places from Biden campaign manager Jen O'Malley Dillon uh, in an interview with a with a, um, a, a grand grandiose American lunatic named Glennon Doyle, um, who uh, basically uh, was trying to describe how wonderful Biden was and how he likes compromise and working with others. And here is the quote. 
the president-elect was able to connect with people over this sense of unity. In the primary, people, meaning Democrats, would mock him like, you think you can work with Republicans? I'm not saying they're not a bunch of effers. Mitch McConnell is terrible. But this sense that you couldn't wish for that, that you couldn't wish for this bipartisan ideal, he, meaning Biden, rejected that. From start to finish, he set out with this idea that unity was possible, that together we are stronger, that we as a country need healing, and our politics needs that too. So, Jenna Malley Dillon is going to be Deputy Chief of Staff. She has now called the Senate uh, Majority Leader, probably future Senate Majority Leader, who knows, but right now it's feeling that way, Mitch McConnell, uh, a uh, an F blank, 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 K-E-R, um, and that he's terrible. Um, is it really legitimate after the last four years to say, oh, uh, now wait a minute, I mean, this is really... This is really shocking. I mean, how can you, you know? Well, it's not that it's shocking because this is actually pretty typical. This is a talk about build back better. It's just this is a return to, you know, the pre-Trump era. What's annoying is that as a strategy, this was something that the Biden campaign uh, was flogging constantly throughout. Like, I am not Trump. I am not Trump. I'm going to heal us. You know, let the healing begin. Well, if the healing begins with your deputy chief of staff calling the entire, the leader of the opposite party a, a, a an expletive. That's not healing. It what she sort of it's funny we talk a lot about how Trump, you know, reads the the quiet stuff, says the quiet stuff out loud. That's what she's doing here. Like maybe Biden personally thinks that, but the people who are running his administration have no compunction about saying very clearly to, you know, extremely uh, uh sympathetic media that they don't they have contempt for the other side and and they're pretty proud of that actually. And and yes, I we shouldn't all be pearl clutching about the fact that, you know, Democrats are doing what a version of what Trump has been doing for four years. But those of us who didn't like it when Trump did it can absolutely call them out. I don't think it's an overreaction. I do think Trump's avid defenders are hypocritical in trying to call this out. But that's not all of us. Noah, let me just I, I'm pretty sure that this was a mistake. Like when this came out, Jen O'Malley Dillon slapped her forehead with her hand and said, oh, my God, why did I do that? Like, I don't this is not a coordinated or planned strategy. It's more like the classic definition of a gaffe, which is that somebody saying something, yeah, reading the state or saying something true that they really shouldn't have said. In other words, true to them, not not true as a fact. But yeah, no, I don't think it was strategic. A um, couple of thoughts on this one. Yeah, Christina's right. Um, anybody who, who ever once defended the president's uh, comportment, behavior, language, or dismissed criticism of it as, but my mean tweets, um, they have no grounds to stand on. And certainly any criticism of uh, Ms. Dylan O'Malley is, um, or O'Malley Dylan rather, is disingenuous. Uh, nevertheless, what she said is an expression of frustration with Joe Biden. She believes this. Joe Biden doesn't. Joe Biden really has Republican friends in the Senate. Anybody who spends decades in the Senate has friends across the aisle. It's a collegial institution. Um, and he doesn't and never has evinced the kind of uh, id that you see among Democratic activists who really do despise and think Republicans are bad people. Um, nevertheless, Karl Rove is correct, but not for the reasons that he said he was. Joe Biden's speech, that which was essentially his acceptance speech, his victory speech, was uh, far too retrospective, um, which is not the tone he's attempting to set. 
It's not what he, it's not how he campaigned in the primary. It's not how he ran in the general. It's not how he talked about uh, the post-election period. It really was kind of a departure from the tone that he has set, which has been forward-looking and, you know, magnanimous. And let's put the past behind us where it belongs. Um, and that one was much more retrospective and much more dwelling on the conditions that prevail right now, which has kept us in sort of a state of suspended animation and lets Donald Trump dictate the terms of the debate. He's Carl Rove is right. Which if we're moving forward, Donald Trump belongs in the rear view mirror in Joe Biden's uh, approach to this political moment. Abe, let me, let me, let me ask you this. So I listened to the speech and as you know, I thought that well, the most striking thing about it was Biden coughing and limping and, you mm-hmm. know, looking kind of, frail but um i don't know that he could have passed this moment without offering something to the people who have been watching the last month uh in a in a in a sense of increasing you know out sputtering outrage um you know he's also the leader of a movement he's also the leader of a party he's also somebody who got 81 million votes. And yes, he should be conciliatory and say, and he did say, I want to work together and this and that and the other thing, but to to let the moment pass without saying what's gone on over the last month is unprecedented. And I've kept my mouth shut and I've let it, let the process work itself out exactly as I thought it would, but enough is enough would have made him seem even weaker than his coughing and limping did. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think coming from him, I think there there would have been a way for a, a different um, president-elect to actually um, sort of um, project strength in that, you know, to be to float above um, the, the garbage that we've been dealing with since uh, the election. Um, but, yeah, in his case, I think that that's probably true. But, you know, as, as, Noah, as Noah says, it's it's Biden is not Biden is, you know conciliatory here generally speaking um i don't i don't think he's he's taken some sort of gross misstep in the in the wrong direction but there's also something else going on this week that that we noticed on our little uh, group text chat which is that everyone's trying to make kamala happen right there's this the, you know tom friedman and other you know sort of major media heavy hitters have been arguing that you know she can't be just a regular vice president that's too small a role for someone as awesome as kamala she needs to be and this is so bizarre. Tom Friedman's arguing that she should basically reach out to rural America. A coastal elite should reach out to rural America and help them become better people or some such. It was total nonsense. But she, he's not the only one. This idea that that there's got to be some sort of foil to Biden in a way, right? So he can be the conciliatory grandpa who comes out and talks about healing. But, you know, his number two is going to be running around telling rural America how to behave. It, it doesn't, it's weird. The messaging is incredibly but, mixed right now. But that, that is in keeping perfectly with this, this, this thing that um, certain class of media has never dropped, which is this anthropological approach to middle, middle America as if they're, or, you know, this, this occurred to me when we were talking about how um, Biden was talking about dignity, you know, their dignity, or treating them like an afflicted population, you know, like they t- talk about it the way you talk about, you know, in the infirm or something, you know. It's very condescending. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, it also suggests that they, Kamala Harris is a, a piece that was just plugged in here and she is interchangeable. Right. Really. She's a replaceable part because they really don't want her to be vice president. They were thrilled that she was selected as vice president. But now that she's going to be vice president, 
they realize that the vice president is a worthless position. And so maybe she should be something else. Hey, man, someone's got to go to the funeral. As long as she's representative of the correct demography. So let's talk about Kamala Harris, a messenger of hope and peace and truth to, you know, the uh, Iron Range of Minnesota. Okay, so her father uh, was a professor of economics. Her mother uh, is a biologist, right? She grew up in, in Berkeley in Oakland or in Berkeley. Uh, she, you know, uh, she herself, like her connection to anybody, she's not only a coastal elite, she is part of the ultra educated cultural elite class. She is the sort of person who grew up and didn't meet a Republican until she was 83 years old. I mean, let, let's, so this idea that she, is the right person from Northern California to understand what, you know, somebody in Duluth, the concerns of somebody in Hibbing, Minnesota has is something that only a man who understands the world from the back of a limousine himself can imagine. So this actually, I'm sorry, I was like stutteringly trying to interrupt you, but this is this recalls, you know, what her most notable uh, outreach effort to Minnesota was, was encouraging people to donate to a bail fund to bail out the people who were rioting and looting in Minneapolis. Yeah. Remember, she had and she never retracted that tweet. She got criticism, some criticism for it, very little from the mainstream media. But some of the people who were released from that bail fund were actually quite violent criminals. So like she that's that's the thing I remember most when I think of Kamala Harris in middle America. It's like, oh yeah, let's bail out the criminals there and, you know, encourage that. Anyway, the whole point about Biden's candidacy was that he was supposed to be the person who could talk to the white working class, not his African-American, you know, female vice president from Northern California. He was the one, he's the guy from Scranton. He's the guy who didn't go to an Ivy League school. Yeah, but they don't like how he does it, which is effective. What they want is they don't want they don't want to reach out to these people. They have abject contempt for them. Right. Well, I have they an don't idea. Know, but they don't know. They don't know. It's sort of like she's great. Let her go talk to these people. I think like, my my idea is that um, Dr. Jill Biden should be put in charge of, of uh, Midwest outreach. She well, must you know, also she be responsible really, for the science behind his hundred days to not open schools business too. Oh I'm yeah, sure we're supposed to get to that. No, but I mean, look, that's the thing about Dr. Jill Biden is if Dr. Jill yep. Biden went and did this, and somebody you know maybe had a heart attack in the front row, she could perform a, an emergency <laughs> tracheotomy or give Dr. a lecture on education. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, if anybody wants to read a genuinely nasty piece about Dr. Jill Biden, uh, Kyle Smith's piece on her doctoral dissertation at NashReview.com uh, makes makes uh, makes Joe Epstein's uh, performance this week look like you know Barney the dinosaur singing "I love you and you love me." Uh, it's it's quite the it, it's quite the performance. Anyway, um, well, briefly, I just yeah. want to dwell on this. There was this clip that went around the internet yesterday. I don't remember when it was from, but it was when Jonathan Carl, ABC's John Carl, was on The View. And this is a famous clip, so the audience has probably seen it, but apparently it was Whoopi Goldberg was remarking on Jill Biden and said, you know, she'd make a great Surgeon General because she's such a great doctor. Yeah, I know. This is the this is the practical desired effect 
of Dr. Jill Biden saying she's a doctor. They want, they they appreciate this confusion. And the brushback pitches to anyone who notices her actual degree are designed to maintain that fiction. Yeah. I mean, this, this really is, you know, uh, this really is, reminds me of the Bugs Bunny cartoon where in the middle of the Bugs Bunny cartoon, after he has been, you know, abusing Elmer Fudd or something, and Elmer Fudd is lying on the ground having something happen, and Bugs Bunny says, is there a doctor, like, looks out into the camera and says, is there a doctor in the house? Is there a doctor in the house? And then, you know, like a silhouette stands up in the foreground of the cartoon and says, yes, I'm a doctor. And Bugs Bunny says, yeah, what's up, doc? (laughs) That, That is... That is the joke of this Dr. Jill Biden thing. And, it, you know, more it goes on, the more it proves that Joseph Epstein was right. And, uh, Noah, you were noting uh, in, in relation to Jen O'Malley uh, Dillon that uh, um, Connie Schultz, longtime progressive columnist uh, with a paper in Ohio uh, and the wife of uh, progressive Senator Sherrod Brown, um objected to people quoting Jen O'Malley Dillon's quote, right? I've since lost the tweet, so I, I can't quote it. Oh, here it is. And, and I think it's it's veiled, but I think it's in reference to this, where she said, quote, anonymous policing of the language of a woman at the top of her game is envy illustrated. Keep moving. Um, which is, again, you know, any any criticism, justified or otherwise, of a Democrat, particularly one that is effective and justified and legitimate, um, is evidence of bigotry and racism, sexism, what have you, all the isms that social justice activists wield like a cudgel because they don't appreciate the criticism. They want to back off the criticism. But the criticism of Joe Biden is absolutely accurate. The criticism of Miss uh, O'Malley Dillon, Dillon O'Malley, I still haven't committed that one to memory, um, is justified because it reflects poorly on a campaign that predicated itself on a return to the status quo ante, to civility, to practicality, to being an effective governor, to not riling up the hoi polloi for the sake of politics. Um, and it exposes the hollowness of that message. So anybody who notices this as being, you know, Trump fans don't have grounds to criticize this, but everybody else does and should. And this is not how we want our politics to be. There's also something everybody should uh, prepare for during the next four years, which is this this idea that um, a, a demo, if a woman has a D next to her name or works for someone with a D next to her name and also happens to have given birth to a child, she is kind of miraculous because how does she do it? It's so incredible. And this was a, a lot of the tone of this Glamour magazine uh, interview with O'Malley Dillon. Um, or now, see, now, Noah, you've got me confused. <laughs> no, but you've right. got Kamala. O'Malley, so you're, Dillon. O'Malley Dillon. O'Malley okay. Dillon. So she's, she's basically treated like, you know, Epic and, and Maggie Haberman of the New York Times tweets out like, this is incredible to see these brave women talking about how difficult it is to be a working mom. Meanwhile, this very same publication a few months ago was talking about how Amy Coney Barrett as a nominee to the Supreme Court fetishized motherhood because she had so many kids and it was so dangerous how she talked about being a mother. Prepare for four more years of this. If you're, especially if you're a working mom and you happen to be more conservative, (laughs) it's appalling, but it's going to, those, those examples will continue to pile up. Christine, can I just say that I don't know how you do it. I don't As a working know mother, I, am, I don't know I am, how you do it. I am, a wa- I am just my... I'm a I, miracle, John. I'm a miracle. You are, you are a miracle. And and here's what's interesting about Jen, Jen O'Malley Dillon is famous for having refused all media attention during the two years of Biden's run. 
people wanted to do profiles of her. People wanted to do profiles of his campaign team. They were incredibly disciplined and they avoided the, you know, making themselves stars while the camp, the, the campaign was going in the sort of Stephanopoulos Carvel manner. They wouldn't do it. The focus was on Biden. If there was focus, they were, they had a single message. They were constrained. They were, they were all this. They let up their guard for one minute after he wins the election and bam, you know, she is out of practice. If she's a media spokesman, it has to be understood that this was an error. This was a mistake. This is not something that a serious political person would ever, uh, an unforced error, creating a controversy that's unnecessary that does her and Biden no good. I think it doesn't matter. I think, oh, you know, McConnell uh, won't care and that the crocodile tears that Republicans are crying over this aren't going to matter. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, when when Carl Rove says stuff like Biden needs to, you know, reach his hand out to the 74 million Trump voters who are grieving and, you know, looking for, you know, what a scapegoat or something like that. You know, some of this has to end too. Not everybody who voted for Trump is incapable of saying, yeah, I voted for Trump, he lost, you know, I guess we have a new president. My guess is that 75% of everybody who votes knows that the person that he voted for has a chance of losing. Um, If Trump's voters are older rather than younger, they've been through this many times before. Most of them probably voted for Mitt Romney and he lost. And most of them probably voted for John McCain and he lost. Like this is not an experience that is unknown to people. And this notion that everybody who voted for Trump is a contributor to the gateway pundit is crazy. That is not true. You know, everybody who voted for Trump is not looking to make sure that the Texas case, you know, that the electors, that the House refuses to accept the Electoral College letter from their state. You know, most people are normal, sensible, rational people and understand that when somebody loses by 7 million votes and, and 80 electoral votes that he lost. It is, in fact, an act of... um it takes political fanaticism of a sort to believe otherwise. Not, by the way, to believe otherwise if the vote is 271 to, what, 268 or whatever, 271 to 266, where you can really say something may have gone on here that's hinky, 700, 500 votes in Florida go the other way and something's wrong here because the butterfly ballot meant that, you know, probably people wanted Gore to be president. That is a totally defensible, emotionally defensible view. But it is not an emotionally defensible view that that Trump won. And so the notion that you're supposed to pay lips or somehow acknowledge that there are a lot of people who believe this and you can really reach out to them, they can't be reached out to. The people who believe that Trump won and that Biden stole the election are unreachable by Joe Biden. And he can be the president of all Americans, and he can speak to most people who were in the Republican coalition who do think that elections are counted fairly. But he is not going to have any success with 126 Republicans who signed on to the Texas lawsuit in the House. He's going to have to assume that every single one of them will vote against every single thing that he does. And at some point, it's political folly to reach out to them 
or even to pretend that you're going to reach out to them. See if you can reach the people who didn't sign on to the letter. And remember, there are there were, you know, was it 70, 70 some odd Republicans who did not sign on to the letter? I mean, the weird thing is that the incoming Biden administration, or at least the president, and rhetorically, we have to say, because rubber hasn't met the road yet, but has done the Biden team and Joe Biden himself has done more outreach to the people who don't support him and voted against him than either Donald Trump or Barack Obama in their transition period. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I don't want to stand here and say that Biden is great. I, I, by the way, think one of the geniuses of the Biden campaign's victory is that it covers up the true nature of Joe Biden. This is something that my friend Mark Halpern gets at in his newsletter today, which is that one of the things that maybe what Karl Rove does spot and that and that and that he spots, Mark spots, is Biden is a hothead. Biden is not a calm, nice, sweet guy. Biden is the logorrheic lunatic of, you know, of that everybody in Washington ran away from if he was walking down the hallway because he might stop you and never stop speaking to you or start yelling at you in a hearing in front of the Judiciary Committee or something like that. Yeah, now he's 78. Now he's he has practiced his boredom. He has practiced his... You know, he 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 has addressed this specific concern about him. That's why he would say things like I'm, he would finish early in his questions and answers in the debates because he was trying to address the idea that he didn't know how to shut up. And it turned out that he had way more discipline than anybody anticipated and expected. But presidents tend not to have that kind of discipline over time. Well, and, he's and he shown, is a hothead. He's shown that here and there, right? When he was, when reporters have asked him questions about Hunter Biden, about his son, that Joe, that that Joe Biden you're describing immediately emerges, right? And he he swats them down. He he's contemptuous of the question itself. He's everything that the media complained Donald Trump was, and they were accurate for the last four years. Like that kind of dismissive, I don't have to answer that question. That's ridiculous. Attacking the reporter, he does that occasionally, but he is. I'll be interested to see how available he makes himself to the press, particularly in his first year, um, and how he reacts to, to actual tough questioning, if he indeed gets real tough questioning. I mean, there were these great moments during the during the primary, right? The, the the woman, when he said, have you ever done it? And the woman said, yes. And he says, you're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> Nobody even knows what that means. You're a lying dog-faced. He it was sort of intended to be funny, but it was weird, but it was crazy. Anyway, the whole point is, you have to give them credit after the most incredibly politically undisciplined political candidacy and presidency that there has ever been in the history of this country. He won the nomination and the presidency with an iron laser focus addressing his own inadequacies and going directly at the single signature weakness of his opponent. But he's not going to have his opponent. He's going to be the guy. And, you know, I said the other, I don't know how it's going to be. It's so boring. People are going to, but I mean, maybe he won't be so boring because maybe he'll let himself loose. Maybe, you know, Jen O'Malley Dillon just showed what happens when Democrats let themselves loose. Every three minutes, if they get frustrated or angry, they're going to start saying things like all Republicans should be in jail and stuff like that. And then have to go into a meeting with five Republicans whom they need to sign on to a stimulus bill or a transportation bill or something like that. And then what are they going to do? 
Well, I think she absolutely showed that there is no quick return if there is indeed any return, if 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 the idea of return is even legitimate at all, to yeah. to civility in politics. It's not. But we should talk about that. Like, is there when when was politics right. last civil? Right. I mean, George W. Bush negotiated this bipartisan bill in 2001 on education that a lot of Republicans came to hate. And they negotiated it with Teddy Kennedy, and this and that and the other thing happened. That was in 2001. That was 19 years ago. And as far as I can tell, with the possible exception of kind of the Homeland Security Act, and by the way, the vote to go to war in Iraq, there has been no bipartisanship in Washington since then at all. I mean, there are, you know, people pass continuing resolutions and stuff like that. But there has not been a single bipartisan bill of the sort that every presidency had one or two of. You know, welfare reform uh, under under uh, Clinton, uh, Americans with Disabilities and the Civil Rights Act under Bush, tax reform under Reagan and the tax cuts under Reagan. That's, you know, it, there were these moments. They're not... They're few and far between, and they're major pieces of legislation. Simpson-Mazzoli, another incredibly controversial bill that was a uh, the immigration uh, amnesty bill of 1986 that, you know, has is now something that Republicans hate more than anything else in life, just like they hate No Child Left Behind. But that was a real thing. It hasn't been a real thing for two decades. And the rhetoric has been uncivil for, for as long yeah. as well. On everybody's part. Right. You know? I mean, Trump spoke horribly, and then Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell say that he's a Soviet agent and lie about intelligence that they know wasn't there. Adam Schiff said that he had seen intelligence that proved that Trump was a Soviet agent, a Russian agent, and he was lying. Head of the Paul Ryan, who is the sweetest person on earth, wanted to kill your grandma. Right. Mitt Romney, who's, in a, who's a, a really upstanding fella. Right. Hated gay people. Oh, wanted to, gay yeah. people. Well, I mean, people back in chains, too. Don't forget the chains. And, <laughs> and, abused animals. And Republicans, according to President Barack Obama, were of a piece with the mullahs in Iran. Yeah. For, so, I mean, the point yeah. is that every, yeah, that the Republican health care right. plan is yeah. for you to die quickly. Right. right. So the whole point here is that by, by part, there, you know, bipartisanship is a, is a, uh, is a species of a different age. Right, it's been a generation since there's been any real bipartisanship, and you could even say that bipartisanship—the reason that it ended was precisely that Democrats who really did not want the war in Iraq felt bullied into it, or felt like they had been forced into it, and it didn't go well, and they didn't want to be implicated in its failure. And uh, and so uh, the idea was that bipartisanship itself was an act of cowardice. And surrender to the other side, which was bad and evil. And then, of course, we have Trump, you know, who had this moment. There was this hinge moment in November, December of 2016 when he could have played the card. He could have he could have played the card that I, frankly, was wor- worried that he was going to play because it was going to mean that bad policy was going to be made. But he could have played the card on infrastructure and a couple of other things. and totally reshuffled the ideological deck in Washington by saying he wanted to do some democratic stuff. And it turned out that even he, even he, this figure outside of American politics, 
found it too discomforting to to step too far away from the comfort level of negative partisanship. Now, maybe he was wise, by the way, in the sense that he built this, you know, uh, personal movement behind him based on the idea that the other guys just wanted to kill him. And that who knows if that movement would have been built up behind him had he done otherwise. And those people who signed on to some of his of that le- that putative legislation like infrastructure, of course, would still have wanted to kill him and destroy him. They just would have they just would have gone along with him on a couple of things that would have maybe made his presidency ma- ma- marginally more successful. But you know that's not the kind of president he he did, wasn't a policy president he was a personal president and so that's what he wanted was was you know was a following not a you know not not a success in that in that realm so uh now let me let me just stop for a second and i said i was going to ask you guys uh our listeners here um to give us some help uh it's the end of the year it's a time when people look into charitable giving Commentary is published by Commentary Inc., which is a nonprofit 501c3. It publishes commentary, it manages our website, and we put out this this daily podcast. Commentary has survived and thrived for 75 years, in part, like all serious uh, intellectual publications and enterprises, on the generosity of donors who uh, open their hearts and open their wallets to help us continue doing what we're doing. Now it's as a, it's important to us that you subscribe. We really and everybody who subscribes, I can't thank you enough for subscribing. Um, but at this time, as you are looking at your end of year charitable giving, I hope you will consider commentary for that purpose. Our subscribers get a letter from me, which should be have been in your mailbox in the last four or five days. Um, with an ask for uh, charitable contributions. I'm making it here right now to you, to our listeners, even people who have who are not yet subscribers. Um, if you go to commentary.com slash donate, you can do it right from the comfort of your own computer at home without that letter, uh, with a credit card. I would be immensely grateful, as would Noah, Christine, and Abe, if you would do this for us. I'll be t- asking you this over the course of the next two weeks, but commentarymagazine.com slash donate. Uh, fully tax deductible. You get a receipt from us so you can so you can write it off. 501c3 nonprofit, commentarymagazine.com slash donate. So guys, what do we uh, what do we talk about now? First hundred days. Yes, the science of a hundred days, as Noah put it. Uh, <laughs> yes, the most scientific administration of technocratic scientists that has ever science. Science, science. Um, so yes, it's amazing that the science prescribes in the first hundred days a, a a national mask, not mandate, but sort of a national mask admonition, a national mask nudge, um, which is set to expire in April after the first 100 days of Joe Biden's presidency. And we learned yesterday that Joe Biden said on this call with elected officials that it will be, quote, controversial, unquote, for him to say this. But he really does think that all schools should open after the first 100 days of his administration. It's controversial only insofar as it contradicts the science, the actual science, public health experts who are saying schools should be open now. They should have never closed, in fact. 
And 100 days will put uh, students at around May. I think that's about around May. So that they would only have a few weeks of school left anyway in a typical school year. And for those of us whose kids have been out since March or April of last it's year. April. It's yeah. April, Christine. It's not okay. May. It's April. Okay, it's How April. dare you? So basically it's April saying an, 30th. Enti- an entire year April without... April 30th, Christine. Okay, sorry. April oh, 30th. April 30th. So, you know, in <laughs> many parts of the country, science. by the way, in many parts of the country, school ends on like May 10th exactly. or something. So, I mean, it's in ahead. June yeah. here in D.C. But no, this will mean that kids who've been in, in total uh, virtual learning will have done so for an entire uh, year, basically year and a half of inver- in, uh, virtual learning last spring, this fall and this spring coming spring. Um, and that is astonishing. And there, it, there is no science behind it. And we do know that schools are already effectively having versions of in-person learning with testing. We did just get news, uh, this week as well that there's a now an approved over the counter, uh, quick antigen test that you can take at home. There, there are now, which we talked about on the podcast a few months ago, there are ways to establish systems to do this safely. What I'm hearing when I hear Biden talk about this, oh, it's so controversial, I am hearing the voice of the teachers unions right there who helped get him elected and who he promised to satisfy. This is his turning in that shit. It's like, thanks very much. No one's going to have to work this way. <laughs> or that you can stay in your pajamas, zooming in when you feel like it uh, with your students. But it was so like this, the... The, the request that he made here, and it was a request, was so gentle and obsequious, and he knew that it was going to frustrate people. He should de- be demanding this. He's the he's the incoming president of the United States. He should be saying, "This is what you must and shall do." Okay, but he's, I, he, 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 and, and the the fact that he was so tentative about it and so cautious about it shows who's really in charge. So. Um, our friend, uh, my friend Daniel Cass, who was on the podcast on Election Day, uh, sent me two really brilliant uh, texts this morning. Uh, one of them uh, in the, uh, you know, sort of wait until March, don't do, you know, like there, uh, somebody saying, I think it was a Zainab Terfeki or something like that, saying what people should say to their parents who want to see them at Christmas is, we can wait until March. Wait until March because, you know, the situation could be dramatically improved by then. But if you go now, you're, you know, it's just, you're going to create the 10 billion people are going to die. If you dare to see your parents at Christmas time. Right. So Daniel um, says to me, liberals greatest fear somewhere. Someone is enjoying themselves. And that is really what has happened over the course of the last year. That what is it? What is the tone of disappointment and disapproval that we experience when people in the summer, when people in the summer were going to the beach or were rollerblading, you know, in Santa Monica, right? It's like, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? What, what What's going on? They're going to a pool? They're going into the ocean? Close that parking lot, you know? And this is interesting to me because... As someone who is about to turn 60, one of the cultural benefits of American liberalism, particularly as the 60s turned, was this idea that, that, that people on the left side of the ledger were the fun people. They were the partiers. They were the, you know, they were the sort of, uh, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll people. That if you were a liberal, you got to have fun. Conservatives wanted to constrain you. They were Mrs. Grundy's. They were censors. They were, 
you know, it's that joke about how people don't like, you know, people don't like sex because it might lead to dancing, you know, a premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. This was the cultural image of liberalism that was very powerful. Um, and it's one of the reasons that, you know, Hollywood, why uh, conserv- social conservatives hated Hollywood so much is that it was peddling this image of uh, cost-free, you know, happy fun, right? And now I'm not saying that conservatism is out there published, you know, saying you should go out and have fun, but this liberal censoriousness does have about it this quality of somewhere, somewhere, somebody is doing something that doesn't involve <clears throat> sitting in a bunker with a mask on. And they, must, and they must be quashed. That doesn't advance the progressive project. This is something that I talked about the other day, and it's this theory that I'm that I'm developing, which is that they've moved away from liberalism and toward progressivism, have adopted its habits of mind, some of which are very puritanical, and are waging a war on fun on every front, from the food you eat to the comedy you consume to your leisure activities, sports. If it has, not, if it does not advance the progressive project, you know, in all forms. You know, and, and and that really does preclude fun. Like there was this great New York Times tweet the other day, or piece rather, about how men are, you know, sewing. They're starting to sew now. And they're doing so to change gender roles, challenge gender roles, and to <laughs> and to, to you know, advance social justice. And um, I think it was Noam uh, who who remarked on this. It's you know, Noam, did, Noam Bloom, at Noam Neon Bloom, yeah. on, on That's my, who my is, nephew. Who had a great observation. It's like, do any of them actually enjoy it? Are any of them having any fun? <laughs> fun is decidedly beside the point. It's not about fun. But see, that's why the, the, the pandemic was such an opportunity, because they always knew fun was bad. Now they have proof. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's deadly, deadly now. It's deadly fun. Yes. You know, in the 1950s. Oh, you know, Brief, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. just interrupting. I want to get back to this. But the reason why it's so decidedly puritanical is because it has such uh, retro, retro rea- reactionary and kind of uh, anachronistic views about sex and about um, uh, alcohol consumption and gender segregation. All these things are making a big comeback in the name of progressivism. These are progressive ideals now that you can't, you know, dr- alcohol is the number one date rape drug and the genders can't really be mixing because, you know, that leads to licentiousness and libertinism and sex. Maybe it's a little bit fun, but it has to have a sort of utility. It has to create these sort of these, uh, it has to challenge, uh, you know, c- coupled forms and it can't be, tra- it has to be less, more transactional and you actually have to put pen to paper before you actually before you consent to this sort of thing um it's it's a very much a throwback to a, a puritanical mood that has uh, that is not alien not to, to progressivism by any means it's native to it so we should have probably seen this coming um so you know in the i was just going to say that in the late 40s when the house on american activities committee started going after you know communists in hollywood and in show business and all of that one of the things that uh, people who were hauled up before the committee or were interviewed by the committee would say is I was in it to meet pretty girls. I I went to party meetings because there were pretty girls at the party meetings in Brooklyn that I wasn't interested in the politics. I was just trying to basically go get laid because, you know, these were bohemian leftist progressive women who were you know believers in the doctrine of free love and i wanted in on that 
right? That's part of what I'm talking about is that there was a there was a spirit of progressivism, uh, an element of progressivism that was that was in fact libertinistic, that was bourgeois, you know, uh, uh, sexual morality was a bourgeois construct. What you hated was middle class bourgeois life, and you were therefore going to up, you know, you were not going to live according to its dictates, and that spirit among progressives is now t- is now totally gone. I don't think I, I think there's actually an element of that that does still survive on the left, which is why they get into these vicious fights um, about um, uh, you know sexual harassment and um, incidents like that. They are at odds with themselves over there, right? Um, well, because because of course the doctrine of sexual restraint. Um, uh, or you know, or sort of Puritanism um, without religion, because the whole point about Puritanism is you're doing it to save your soul from eternal damnation. You're not just doing it because you're trying to protect the personhood of the person that you might be personally interacting with, or saving the planet, or something like that. This is you and eternity, and 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 if you live in a moral life, you are going to be punished for your immorality forever now it's just you know it's it's without any connection to the divine or the or the you know or because the self-discipline that it requires has replaced the that concept of the soul right so if you're disciplined enough you won't drink too much you won't have too much unprotected sex you won't do all the things that are on the naughty list now but you don't but but for the for different reasons it's actually hyper individualistic reasoning right it's i'm going to be my the my best self you hear people talk about that right like i have to be my best self and it has a weird sort of therapeutic um and also very solipsistic uh, focus versus what i think you're talking about john which is this idea that we have you have an immortal soul and there are consequences when you do the wrong thing right and speaking of that by the way i just wanted to read another uh, text from from my friend daniel um, who points that? Who says this? And this is where we can maybe take this conversation. Biden, he says, is going to be very fortunate. He will spend the first twelve months being a righteous scold, and in in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, the whole world will go into an orgy of eating out, concerts, travel, and then obviously he he or Democrats run for you know uh, run for reelection in 2024 in this era of hyper good feeling. So he gets the benefit of the Puritanism and will get the benefit of the counter Puritanism that will explode after everybody's vaccinated. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Look, I mean, there's there's also an element of uh, you know, conservatives have sort of helped this, you know, nurture this condition uh, on the left in part because you know, Donald Trump basically represented a surrender in a lot of the contentious social battles that defined most of this century on the right. Um, they lost a lot of them. The social conservatives lost a lot of those wars. They, they don't take stock of the victories that they have most, most of which um, are around abortion and reduced rates of abortion and a, and a consciousness about uh, abortion that didn't exist in the 20th century, late 20th century. But they also lost a lot of those battles. And then Donald Trump came along and basically declared surrender uh, in transgender wars and gay marriage and half a dozen other things. And a lot of the people who would have been banging on that drum before him followed him and followed him into this new uh, understanding of what 
conservatism's, you know, uh, the hills on which conservatism would, would die were. And so they, they left the field, they seeded the field and political, and they are more attracted to a white, a white working class vote, which is, um, doesn't have these kind of habits of mind of, of a so- traditional social conservative. So they kind of, the coalition shifted and progressive progressives took up the lost banner. You know, whenever a political coalition abandons one issue, the other one's going to pick it up. Right. And by the way, the other thing is that this, um, you know, the uh, there's an interesting aspect of the now famous into or infamous intellectual dark web you know, the red-pilled people who don't subscribe to the cultural orthodoxy of the present moment, particularly on college campuses, which is that on the one hand, uh, the Jordan Peterson types, Christine has written about somewhat critically, who basically are the show self-discipline, you know, be a man, make your bed, be good, but, you know, don't do it out of any sense of connection to, you know, the divine. It's some kind of self-willed, self-actualized, uh, effort at, at good behavior, uh, you know, work out a lot, you know, be healthy, whatever. And then, of course, there is the, uh, in the person of, say, somebody like Joe Joe Rogan, there's also sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's Joe Rogan smoking p- dope with Elon Musk for three hours. You know, it's like, lighten up, have some fun. You know, what is wrong with you people it's like living, you know, it's like living with your, you know, with your great grandmother. And and so the, the right now has these two very interesting poles or this this world of you know, political incorrectness is trying to f- steer its way through this in some fashion. Christine, like this is a this is a big subject of yours. So. Well, it's just it, it's curious to me because it's often on the right. It's it's also part of sort of traditional masculinity and whatever crisis traditional masculinity might feel itself to be in at that moment. Um, I do think it's inter- interesting that on the left, those lead the leaders of whatever Puritanism are often female. They're often women, right? They're the most progressive left leaning women and on the right. You see more kind of hard charging self-improvement. And my problem with the Jordan Peterson approach isn't the message, which is, I think, about discipline and actually trying to ground men in something more traditional now that those traditions are long gone from many of their lives. Um, to remind them of those traditions, I think, is, is a good impulse. It's that it's it comes from a combative place of aggrievement um, and that the starting point is we're, we're, you know, victims here. We're the victims. How do we improve ourselves, even though we're being constantly victimized? And that overarching message, especially for young men, I think isn't helpful. But um, no, it's, it's fascinating to watch the kind of libertarianish Joe Rogan type of, of uh, teaching, as it were, about uh, personal behavior versus the Jordan Petersons of the world. I mean, in some sense, they're both also entertainers. So we should consider that as part of their... (laughs) Right. But, you know, Joe Rogan's latest controversy, which involves our our friend Abigail Schreier and her book um, about transgenderism, has this other quality to it, which is commonsensical analyses of things that are going on now. Like, um, what do you mean a 12-year-old who has no experience of life should go on puberty blockers and have gender reassignment surgery. Are you insane? That is not right. That is, you know, if we even have to take this seriously, the one thing we need to watch out for is that we are not using these methods and methodologies 
you know, uh, to allow people to self-mutilate and self-abuse because they are too young and too unaware of life to be making gigantic decisions about their future of this sort. And then Joe Rogan gets a $100 million contract from Spotify and people at Spotify cry and they say this is terrible and they want him to be suppressed. Um, and, you know, he's not going to be suppressed, but it's that interesting, you know, what happens when people say that liberal or progressive solutions are bad and they don't want to live by them is the shut up, he explained. Shut, either you shut up or I will, we will shut you up. I, I think the, um, the Jordan Peterson strain and the Joe Rogan strain are actually much closer than, um we've characterized here. I don't, I don't think they're really at odds. I think the difference is essentially that Joe Rogan smokes weed and, 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 uh, and Jordan Peterson does. Yeah, but Jordan Peterson has all kinds of weird, like nutritional things. Doesn't he like only uh, eat raw meat or something? Yeah. I, 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 as you guys know, yeah. I love him, but he's a total drama queen. And, got, you know, <laughs> yeah. Got, yeah. I like Joe Rogan. I listen to him all the yeah. time. But I think, you know, what's in, what's fascinating to me is that the counterculture on the right is about discipline and restraint, um, and that's a that's a strange, at least this this strain of the counter, counterculture, and that's a very interesting thing for a counterculture um, to be um, championing. Uh, you know, in terms of the the left puritanical, um, the, the sort of fight on the left between these puritanical ideas and the and the libertinism, I have to say, I think. Uh, Alan Bloom touched on this in the eighties, a long time ago, when he said, "This is comes down to a fight, um, a, 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 an unease with the, the sharing the legacies of both the sexual revolution and feminism. Um, that that this right. is always going to be an uneasy fit." And there was a brief revival in 2017, 2018 on the left of uh, Andrea Dworkin's um, thought. Um, Attacking feminist pornography, such a thing was, was it could not be done. Andrea Dworkin was very discomfited by the kind of libertinism that was the new left. But the even newer left is is perfectly okay with her her thinking, her philosophies, or at least they were briefly. Um, I think the, that that probably was niche, but it's nevertheless indicative. I don't think it's niche at all. I mean, you know, the uh, Michelle Goldberg part, was, you know, yeah, singing her praises. Yeah. But part of what happened after the Me Too stuff started, you know, were things like the 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 blanky uh, media men list, which had entries like "He touched my back." You know, Moira Donegan was Moira Donegan had a bit, yeah, actually the, was yeah. was quoted in that Michelle Goldberg piece, saying, you know, Dworkin had a yeah. big point here. Do people remember why Garrison Keillor lost his position after thirty years as the head of the most successful public radio show ever? is that he put his hand on a woman's back and then his hand went up her back. Right? So uh, that is Andrea Dworkin's Susan Brunmillerism. That is the male touch of a female is, is, is no different from race. Qualitatively, 
no, re- not really different from rape. Well, and until the, the 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 root of their argument always was and continues to be for the radicals among them who are still out there that you can't actually have consensual sex in a patriarchal society. Anytime a woman consents to sex with a man, if the superstructure, if there's still structural patriarchal oppression, she is being raped. I mean, that was the root of it, and that is what right. drove a lot of kind of logical, more rational women away from that extreme because that didn't make sense to them, right? Like the idea that they were somehow brainwashed by the patriarchy and they couldn't give their own, you know. Right. And that was the theme of the groundbreaking 1975 book Against Our Will by Susan Brown Miller, which was a central feminist text of the 1970s and was the implicit direction that feminism and liberalism were going until Bill Clinton became president. And when Bill Clinton became president, and the question then was, okay, are we going to apply the logic of our beliefs about this to uh, to somebody who seems to be, you know, that Lucy Ann Goldberg and Newt Gingrich want to get rid of? The answer was no, we are sticking with him and not with this philosophy that we have basically been following in some implicit way, even though we're not really living by it. Uh, And then we basically had 20 years of a cessation of much interest in this subject until Trump became president. So with that, we will, with this uh, big think, this giant social big think, we, we will leave you to think deep thoughts about our, the relations between men and women until we uh, return to you tomorrow. Um, For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.